Part Three, Section One, of the Sinking of the Merrimac by Richmond Pearson Hobson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Three, Imprisonment in Morro Castle, Section One, containing generous reception on the Mercedes, a surprise for the Spanish officers, how the news of the crew's safety came to be sent to Admiral Sampson, reflections on the result of the maneuver. Removal to the Moro, courtesies from Admiral Cervera, in the cell of the Moro, Captain Bustamante's kindness. When we were all on board and had laid aside our arms and accoutrements, the launch headed about and stood for the Reina Mercedes, and I directed the men who were shivering to get down near the furnace, to which no objection was raised. Not a word was spoken until we reached the Mercedes. However great may have been their curiosity and interest, the officers, after their first kind words of greeting, forbore to ask questions or make remarks. When we came alongside, the senior officer asked if I would be good enough to go on board with my men. So courteous was his manner, we might have been guests coming to breakfast. The officer of the deck and the executive officer met us at the head of the gangway. I bowed salute and inspected the men for their condition. Those who were still shivering were sent forward at once for stimulants and friction. Kelly's lip showed a wide gash that had become clogged with coal dust. Murphy had a wound in his right hip, twelve or fourteen inches in length and perhaps a quarter or a half of an inch in depth, which he had received in the blast when he fired torpedo number one and though the wound certainly must have been painful, he had not uttered a groan or made any reference to it during all the time that had elapsed. It was only after our arrival on the Mercedes that we learned of it. The men were all more or less scratched and bruised from colliding with objects in the vortex world, but there was no injury of consequence, the life preservers having formed excellent buffers. The executive officer followed the inspection, and gave directions for the care of the men. Kelly and Murphy went to the surgeon, and all were given facilities for washing and were supplied with dry clothing. We found the crew of the Mercedes scrubbing down decks and clearing up after the engagement. Everybody seemed to be on deck, and the men, singly and in groups, stared at us with wild-eyed astonishment. Our unconventional uniforms had suffered in adjustment, and they must have thought us an odd-looking group of man-of-war's men. The men having gone forward, the executive officer invited me to his stateroom, had a bath prepared for me and clothing of his own set out, and invited me to come into the wardroom, when ready, and join him at breakfast. The oil and fine coal that had come to the surface had had full chance to permeate, and made heavy bath-work, with the executive officer's civilian clothing made for a different build, was of questionable fit, but the difficulties due to excessive girth secured the return of my sword-belt when it had been dried out. Special full dress, however, could not have brought out a whit more courteous and cordial treatment. After a hearty handshake of congratulations and repeated kind words, the executive officer, with thoughtful reference to our exposure, ordered stimulants. I told him, however, that I was in good shape, none the worse off, and that the breakfast coffee, I was sure, would be sufficient. He gave me his card. 
Emilio J. de Acosta y Ayerman, Capitán de Fregata, adding in pencil, Secondo Comandante de Cruce Reina Mercedes, and I told him my name and rank. While eating, we fell into frank and general conversation, all the officers except one having finished breakfast. Captain Acosta gallantly opened the conversation by saying that there was no reason why officers engaged in honorable warfare, though opposing to their utmost in battle, might not be the best of friends. He went on to describe how he himself had directed the fire of two heavy guns against the entering vessel, though a large part of his crew were absent manning guns that had been put ashore, and how he had finally sunk her by two whitehead torpedoes from his bow tubes, remarking that the mines fired at us seemed to have missed going astern. He added that, of course, it was an unequal fight, that, in fact, it seemed to him that we should have known from the natural formation of the entrance that it would be impossible for a vessel to force her way through. He then asked what battery we had. I had just referred to being on duty on the New York, and understood him to refer to her, and in reply enumerated her battery, mentioning that he would find it in any of the naval annuals. This seemed to agree with what he had concluded was the battery, and he then asked how many men we had lost. I told him we had lost none. He asked where, then, were all the crew, and all those that were below in the engine and boiler rooms and magazines. I saw that he had been referring all the time to the vessel that came in, and told him that she was the Merrimack, a collier, and had no guns at all, that we had sunk her ourselves, and would have sunk her athwart near Estrella if the steering gear had not been shot away and nearly all our own torpedoes disabled, adding that, though one of their mines had struck us, it was doubtful if it had assisted our sinking to any extent, and that we had felt no shock from the automobile torpedoes fired by the Mercedes. He seemed utterly incredulous. The same experience was met with in the case of the other Spanish officers. The explosions of their own projectiles must have been taken for the firing of guns on board the Merrimack. Some went so far as to locate two heavy turrets with two guns each, one forward and one aft, and a battery of rapid-fire guns amidships. Apparently the facts were accepted only after information from the outside, derived either from the New York by the boat which subsequently took out a flag of truce, or from the United States via Madrid. When we had finished breakfast, the commanding officer, who had come to the gangway when we first came on board, came into the wardroom. I was introduced, and he gave me his card. Rafael Micon, Capitan de Navio, below which he had written, Admiral al Valiente Capitan y la Dona Gran Suerte. I told him my name and rank, and he expressed surprise, as had Captain Acosta, that a constructor should be engaged in military duty at the seat of war. It was difficult to explain to him that our constructors are recruited differently from those abroad, having the same military training as line officers. We fell into general conversation, in which he philosophized on the question of the war, pointing out that the Cubans were ungrateful, and in general a bad lot, that Cuba itself was really an encumbrance upon Spain, that it was recognized, in fact, that Cuba was lost, and Spain fought only for tradition and honor. This seems to have been the general view of the officers with whom I conversed afterward. These observations were made in a delicate way, without involving the attitude of the United States, 
but I made no reply to them. When Captain Mikan left, I asked for writing materials, for I had concluded to try to communicate with Admiral Sampson, with a view of getting information sent out that would allay the anxiety of our families. Since it was evident that from their observation of the magnitude of the fire directed upon the Merrimack, our friends on the fleet would give us all up for lost. The information was directed to Admiral Sampson, and the Spanish commander-in-chief was requested to send it out under flag of truce. The two communications read as follows. To Admiral Sampson, Spanish ship Reina Mercedes, Santiago de Cuba, June 3, 1898. Sir, I have the honor to report that the Merrimack is sunk in the channel. No loss, only bruises. We are prisoners of war, being well cared for. Very respectfully, R.P. Hobson, Assistant Naval Constructor, U.S.N. Commander-in-Chief, U.S. Naval Forces, off Santiago de Cuba. To Admiral Cervera. Spanish ship Reina Mercedes, Santiago de Cuba, June 3, 1898. Sir, I have the honor to request that the enclosed communication be sent under flag of truce to the Commander-in-Chief of the United States Forces off Santiago de Cuba. Very respectfully, Richmond Pearson Hobson, Assistant Naval Constructor, United States Navy. To Commander-in-Chief, Spanish Forces, Santiago de Cuba. The report to Admiral Sampson was first drafted to read, I have the honor to report that the Merrimack is sunk in the channel, not where planned, but the best that could be done, no loss, etc. But I thought that the additional clause would be more likely to prevent the delivery of the communication. The request, in fact, was a singular one to make, even of a generous enemy. But our reception and treatment had been exceedingly kind, and it was evident that unless informed at once, the squadron would report us lost. When the letters were turned in, Captain Acosta placed his stateroom at my service, showed me photographs of his family, and told me to make myself at home, insisting that I must be tired and should lie down in his bunk while he went out to attend to duties. Evidently we were to be treated kindly as prisoners of war, and would have some chance of being exchanged if no chance of escape should occur beforehand, and should then have further opportunity for action. Left alone, my first thought was naturally of home. Then my mind began to go over the situation, the condition of the defenses and the effect of the sinking of the Miramac. Probably the Spanish fleet could get by her, one at a time, but it would be a delicate and difficult operation for a large ship, especially at night. They could not stop or anchor or make any formation at the enlargement of the channel or utilize the two bites extending to the right and left. Ah, they were talking about this very subject in the wardroom. An officer had evidently come on board, and the conversation had become animated, so that the words and even whole sentences could be heard. But he says positively that the channel is blocked and as far as I could gather, the statement appeared to be quoted from an army engineer sent to investigate. My heart leaped. Could it be, after all, that the channel was completely blocked? But sober thought again reasoned. No, they may think so for a while, may continue to be in doubt. The difficulties and disadvantages imposed may cause hesitation and delay, and may permit of further preparation on our part. 
but when it becomes necessary pilots can surely take their fleet out by daylight one at a time again and again i reviewed the situation but each time the inevitable conclusion came back that the blocking was incomplete hard and bitter was the thought beyond the comfort of philosophy in its assurance that the human factor of the problem was complete and that the element of incompleteness was beyond human control these thoughts had continued perhaps an hour when captain acosta came in to say that an officer from general linares had come down from the morrow and that the prisoners were ordered to be taken to the castle the captain said that he was very much distressed that they had hoped to entertain us on the mercedes and he feared we might not fare so well we went into the cabin and i was introduced to the officer a formal conversation was kept up for a short while when another officer was announced and i was introduced to captain bustamante chief of staff of admiral Cervera. i said that i had had the pleasure of meeting captain bustamante in the launch this morning to which the captain made a pleasant reply and then stated that it was his duty to inform me that lieutenant general linares commanding the department had taken the prisoners from the hands of the navy and had ordered them to be transferred to the morrow and that the launch was waiting to take us we found my men already at the gangway in going out it was discovered that no hat had been provided for me and the nearest officer the navigator charged back to get one which was a straw hat of the american type i had the pleasure of entertaining this officer afterward on the new york two days after the surrender my men all had on dry clothing spanish sailor uniforms their wounds had been dressed and a good breakfast had been served to them there was something touching in the good-byes at the gangway the spanish officers expressing repeated regrets that we should be taken away to the morrow when i was thanking them for the kind treatment received on board charette stepped out and requested me for the men to express their thanks and appreciation the spanish officers and sailors seemed surprised to see such thoughtful courtesy in the seamen in fact the admirable conduct and bearing of the men throughout the term of imprisonment was a continued source of surprise to the spaniards officers speaking to me from time to time about these remarkable men i assured them that the men were simply types of the american seamen captain acosta shook hands and said he would come up to see me in the morrow and bring some reading matter and begged that i would call upon him in case he could be of service these kind purposes were not destined to be fulfilled for alas i was not to see the gallant captain again a guard followed us into the launch and we stood across the entrance passing only a short distance from the merrimac looking at her the conclusion was inevitable that the channel was not completely blocked and i felt again the sting of bitter disappointment we rounded estrella point stood into the cove and landing at the small wharf climbed the steep height approaching morro from the rear we climbed slowly captain bustamante stopping to catch breath and gained a height from which stretched out the entrance and socapa estrella charuca punta gorda smith key and the opening of the bay beyond where lay the vessels that meant so much we pushed on and there close at hand had a full view of morro from the north the walls all black from the weather of ages a very type of medieval castle that had so interested me when i was in europe telling so much dark history 
and hiding so much more. Why were we going in there? Were we not to be treated as prisoners of war? On top, a short distance off the path, stood an officer in frock coat and white trousers, looking at us as we came up. The captain confirmed my impression that it was Admiral Severa, and verified my identification of him as the officer who had assisted me into the launch in the morning, and the young officer who had been with him in the launch proved to be his son. The admiral must have dressed hurriedly in the morning, for in the launch I had not noticed any insignia of his rank. As we passed, I saluted with the captain, and the admiral returned the salute. We crossed the bridge over the moat, passed the portcullis, and entered a vaulted passage where an officer and guard were waiting. Captain Bustamante spoke to the officer, apparently the adjutant, a thick-set man, low, heavy, with a long black beard and raven eyes, apparently the man for the place. The men were conducted on through, and the jailer, with a ring of massive keys, led me to the left under an arched entrance into the guard-room. There were two chairs and a table. The jailer made a motion to a chair and sat down. He was a remarkable man, probably six feet two, all bone and muscle, aquiline features, a face with a hard-set expression that seemed never to have been disturbed by the passing of an emotion, the man to carry out orders to the letter, whatever their nature. We sat on in silence for a few minutes when Admiral Cervera entered and we rose, and the jailer withdrew without a word. The admiral advanced with outstretched hand and with an inquiry as to my welfare, the greeting of a charming gentleman and gallant officer. I felt at home with him at once. We sat down, and he went on to say that he had received my note enclosing the report to the commander-in-chief of the American forces, and that he had been particularly desirous to deliver it. But, being a communication with the enemy, it was necessary to refer the matter to General Linares, who, as a lieutenant-general, was his senior, and that General Linares had refused to let the report be delivered. However, a flag of truce would be taken out, and the American admiral would be informed of our escape and safety. The conversation, carried on in French, then became more or less general, only a reference being made to the Merrimac, the admiral inquiring as to her size, but carefully avoiding embarrassing questions. He spoke of American officers whom he had met, and inquired particularly about Admiral Luce, whom he had seen in Spain in connection with the Colombian celebration. I referred to the report that he had had service in the United States, mentioning that I had understood he had been on duty in Washington as naval attaché to the Spanish legation. He replied that this was a mistake, that the attaché belonged to another family. During my two years' cruise as midshipman, I had visited a number of ports in Spain, and later, while on duty in Paris, on a mission to the French shipyards, I had taken occasion, en route from Bordeaux to Toulon, to cross the Pyrenees into Spain. He knew all the places I had visited, and conversation continued in the pleasantest vein for probably ten minutes. The admiral left with the salutations and the courteous manner that would have marked a visit to a friendly admiral on his flagship. Ah, I thought, this admiral commanding the Spanish naval forces has taken the pains to put on the uniform for official visits and has come at the very earliest moment to visit a young lieutenant of the enemy in prison. Surely chivalry is not yet dead.'
As the admiral left, the jailer re-entered, and led the way out of the room through the passageway to the rear, down a flight of steps, across a sort of court, then up another flight of stairs, stopping before the door of the highest cell, which occupied the top of the southwest angle of the castle, a sentry having followed us. The door faces to the southward and eastward, from a commanding position, and while the jailer was adjusting the heavy key and throwing back the bolts, I gazed out over the sea. There lay our vessels. I recognized them all, slowly moving back and forth in two columns. What a sight! The power of a great nation concentrating with determined purpose. History calling. The eternal rule of justice appealing. The god of war impelling. A heavy blow was about to fall for liberty and the sacred cause of human right. It was a great sociological phenomenon, and the individual was not to be counted, was indeed happy in being lost. The jailer threw open the door, and as we entered the barren and filthy cell, flies and insects started up. Then I perceived the word muerte written on the wall. The last prisoner must have died there and evidently the cell had not been cleaned since. The jailer withdrew, leaving the sentry at the door. An attendant brought in a box with four upright strips nailed at the corners for a table, but it would not stand, so he leaned it against the wall and left. The sentry closed the door, locking it and bolting it. This then was my cell, and that was its furniture. I walked up and down on the broken brick-and-mortar floor and wondered where my men could be. After a while the door opened and Captain Bustamante entered. He must have been shocked at the situation, for his first word was an apology. He said that he was distressed, and such condition of things would not be allowed to continue, and that I must regard it as only temporary. I assured him that I should ask for no indulgence, but that he must perceive that the sanitary condition was utterly intolerable, that I must ask that the cell be cleaned and the door left open for light and ventilation, that my men be given clean cells, and that we be allowed means of keeping our cells and persons clean, as otherwise infection would be inevitable, with every probability of blood poisoning through the wounds and scratches. He replied that he personally would look to the matter at once. He had come, he continued, to ask if there was anything he might do for me in connection with the flag of truce which he was about to take out to the fleet. I asked if it would not be inconsistent with his duty, that simply as a matter of personal satisfaction to me, he would mention to Admiral Sampson that the Merrimack steering gear had been shot away. He replied that he feared he should not be allowed to speak about the subject at all. I asked him then if he would be kind enough to make inquiry about a young colleague of mine who had come away after the Merrimack in a steam launch. I had been very anxious about Powell. I knew, of course, that he would not think of coming within the fire of the guns on the slope of Skokapa, but as the picket boat was not far from the position where he was to lie, I feared lest the launch, which carried only rifles, might have fallen in with her. He said he could readily assure me on the subject as no word had come in that the launch had been injured. I asked Captain Bustamante if he would be kind enough to have the surgeon directed to give careful and constant attention to the wounded men, and to allow one of the crew, Charette or Montague, to 
come in to receive instructions as to details in taking care of their health in confinement. End of Part 3, Section 1